Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, March 28th, 2022. On the show today, news, listener questions, and in our main segment, Jim Hill and I propose which attractions are the modern classics in Disney theme parks. Let's get started by bringing in the man who sleeps with a bat under his bed in case anyone breaks in and wants to learn about echolocation. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Interesting fun fact, Glenn. I am the bat whisperer of my family. Really? Seriously, whenever a bat gets into somebody's house, I am the one who gets the phone call and go down to their house armed with a dish towel. Yeah. You try to get it closed in in one particular room and it will fly back and forth by and eventually it will tire and land on a screen window or a curtain. You go with the, the dish towel and place it around the bat gently and then separate it because it's it's got tight little talons that'll yeah. either be on the, the screen or the curtain. And then you carry outside and release it. And I've done this here at the house. I've done it for my sister-in-law. And Alice, whenever she's visiting, is just fascinated by this because she gets to look close at the bats and they yeah. have cute little faces, but scary, scary mouths. Scary oh mouths, scary eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. True. Miles and miles of teeth, and which again is why you use the dish towel rather than the bare hand to grab yeah, the thing. Exactly. So, yeah. While I may be an animal lover, not as big a fan of rabies. <laughs> oh, that's right. I forgot. Yeah, bats are uh, bats and skunks. I think right or rabies. Yeah. There you go. There yeah. you go. It, not like they needed additional publicity problems with the whole rabies thing. Yeah, probably not. Uh, not not the best marketing for the uh, for the bats. There you go. Have you seen the the ones that are at Animal Kingdom? The some of the bats that are hanging with like the the two foot wingspans. Oh yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. and we're know, moving on to the next room. <laughs> that's it exactly. <laughs> keep moving, kids. Keep moving, kids. It's like, excuse me. Do you have the super size dish towel? Because I don't think I can get this guy with. You know, so. it's true. It's true. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Denise Kays, Edison Dave, and Mr. Omiyagi. And longtime subscribers, Nate Brown, I just had breakfast with Nate, Jason McElwee, and Diz Chaser. Jim, these are the folks who run around the Animal Kingdom Lodge Savannah every morning before the Boma Buffet opens, harvesting zebra domes from the zebras on the Savannah. They say it's a process similar to beekeepers and collecting honey, except instead of getting stung, the biggest occupational risk is running out of banana bread pudding to feed the zebras. True story. There are so many questions. The natural world is just fascinating, isn't it? (laughs) There we go. All right, folks, on to the news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, a couple of reminders for our listeners. We're doing our first ever Disney Dish Cruise, September 23rd through 26th. I believe that is sold out now. If you want to get on a waiting list, storybookdestinations.com slash Disney Dish. Also, we're doing the second annual Gingerbread Challenge in Walt Disney World starting Friday, December 2nd, 2022. Fun games and prizes. And then uh, March 30th to April 1st, 2023 for our group cruise on the Star Cruiser Halcyon. That's a Thursday check-in and a Saturday checkout, which somehow also appropriately is April Fool's Day. Speaking of the Star Cruiser gym, uh, mm-hmm. a friend of ours shared a photo of a mock-up of some other thing they're working on. We're not going to mention the friend or the thing, but you saw yeah, that, right? I yeah, did. And, 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 and Where the, is the, the sound pre- stage? And how do we how do we, how do how do we break into it? 
I yes, and and I, I think the one word we can use safely here is balderdash. Very interesting. We'll see what, uh, mm-hmm. what happens there. Yep. All right, Jim. Uh, uh, quick news item: uh, Walt Disney World Park hours expanded for the rest of spring break. That's into April of. 2022 uh, Magic Kingdom now closes at 11 p.m., which is Jim two hours later than it was. So that tells you how big crowds are at the parks. Also, uh, Animal Kingdom now opens at 7:30, and the park closing is now 8:30. So we're looking at 13 hours for the Animal Kingdom. Epcot still opening at 8:30, and then the Studios is also now opening at 8:30. So that's that's really good. And this does a couple of things. Number one is it gives more people a chance to ride more rides. Um, but number two, it also opens up a little bit more Genie Plus and individual Lightning Lane capacity for those rides. Yeah, too. which is becoming an essential part of the Walt Disney World oh, theme we, park experience. We have questions, Jim. We have many questions later on. Okay. All right. On to surveys. Our friend Jonathan uh, sent in a survey he got from mm-hmm. Disney World about the 50th anniversary celebration. And Jim, you know, I've talked about how we think. Disney internally thinks the 50th uh, anniversary celebration did not go as well as it could have for obvious reasons, right? But this survey seems to confirm that. So one of the questions that Jonathan sent in from Disney was this. How did the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary celebration compare to your expectations? About what was expected? Better than expected? Or worse than expected? And Jonathan here Uh, answered worse than expected. That leads to another series of questions around which reasons best describe why you felt that the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary celebration was below expectations. A couple of them that were interesting were merchandise prices too high. The merchandise selection was limited. Uh, Third reason, the decor was limited. Fourth reason was commemorative entertainment for the celebration was lacking. It seemed like just another day in the park it wasn't as good as other Disney celebrations. The special food and Bev offerings were limited. The fireworks show didn't celebrate the 50th anniversary. There were long lines to purchase merchandise. The celebration didn't celebrate classic Disney and lacked nostalgia. The crowds make it difficult to enjoy the celebration. There were long lines to purchase food and Bev. It wasn't special enough for a 50th. And then the merchandise I was that I wanted was unavailable. And then there was another another reason to with a freeform text that is uh, super interesting in and itself. Jim, I think uh, the fact that Disney went through a list of what is that? 15, 16 items. Yeah. Uh, my, my guess is this is a list of things that they heard from guests in the park mm-hmm. and they decided to put on a survey. What do you think? Oh, no doubt. Oh, yeah, by the way, I just want to offer a, a clarification uh, from, I, I want to say we were talking on a sh- last week's show or the week before mm-hmm. about some fireworks tests that were being done after hours right. for Harmonious at Epcot. There were two two sets of uh, fireworks tests, one at uh, Magic Kingdom, one at uh, Epcot, yeah. Yeah, well, what was kind of interesting is we had uh, a member of the team reach out with clarification. And it turns out they were actually touching on what we're talking about here, the the issues about limited merchandise and that sort of thing, which of course is tied to the supply chain issues that were tied back to the right. pandemic and all that. That was the thing. The after hours tests were of shells uh, new shells to to replace other shells from the show because frankly they're still having supply chain issues. Oh yeah. So yeah. in a lot of ways you have to feel for the folks for the 50th anniversary and the fact that they have to even do these surveys because this was never the plan. We were never supposed to have a pandemic 
in the year ahead of the event, which would derail so many plans. Right. You got to feel for them. But at the same time, the fact that it's this lengthy a list and so specific. Yeah. I mean, some of this stuff is supply chain. Some of it's not. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like like the uh, the item that says the 50th didn't celebrate classic Disney and lack nostalgia. Uh, nothing, nothing supply chain related would have affected that. Very true. Very true. The other interesting question that came out of Jonathan's survey, Jim, Mm -hmm. was this one. And I want to get your take on this. Mm -hmm. The question is for this question, please think about non-Disney brands, products, or services inside the parks. And looking at the list below, which of any did you notice during your visit to Epcot? And the list of companies is Hershey's, Uber, Joffrey's Coffee and Tea, Mm -hmm. Ford, Verizon, Ziploc, AT&T, Alex and Annie, Chase Visa, Edie's Ice Cream, and Coca-Cola. So let's go through this, Jim. At Epcot, what is it that Hershey's does? Do you know? That one is not ringing a bell. I so that, that was my question. Like, are some of these like dummy answers? Gotta be. Gotta be. I mean, something like Joffrey's Coffee and Tea. Yeah, we that, got that. I know. mean, they're there, right? Yeah. But Uber? Well, Ford? Yeah. Ford doesn't do anything at Epcot, as far as I know, right? Verizon, like I don't, I mean, we know Ziploc does the bags for the Kid Cut Fun Stops, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then does AT&T still sponsor Spaceship Earth? I don't think they do. Mm-hmm. Chase Visa does the um, thing over at Pixar Short Film Festival mm-hmm. around the Mickey uh, Mickey Mouse character greeting. Edie's Ice mm-hmm. Cream obviously does stuff. Coca-Cola is everywhere. Yeah, but I, mm-hmm. like going through this list, I was like, what is it that Uber, Ford, Verizon, and Hershey's do? And I couldn't think of anything. You know, I mean, if you think back to the early days of Epcot, they were very front and center. Oh, yeah, yeah. About which corporation sponsored future world pavilions, that sort of thing. I wonder if this is something that's being done internally. There are a number of projects that are looming that Disney will need corporate partners for. Right. And the fact that they're tossing Ford in there just to see. You know it's GM, right? It's you know Ford. it's exactly. Yeah, I wonder. I <laughs> wonder know. if that's it. Like, how many how many people yeah. know that Test Track is sponsored by a car company, but can't remember which one? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's not info you want to carry no, into a potential. Exactly. It's not going to help you. Well, it, what it might do though is it. Um, my my second thought about this was that the current sponsors of Epcot or potential sponsors mm-hmm. are looking at the way that the sponsorship is presented in the attractions and saying. What exists isn't enough for the $10 million or whatever a year we're supposed to give us. You need to do better. So this could be a question that tests that. Like if if enough people mix up Ford and GM, it's a messaging problem, right? There you go. Okay. There so that go. might be it. And, okay. and that would be another way for if Disney could rectify that problem, it would bring them more back-end revenue from the sponsorship. So even if the answers here aren't good, they could take it as constructive feedback in order to make more money. Here's hoping. <laughs> you, always, you always have to follow the money with, with Disney. Right? No, 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 definitely. <laughs> definitely. You know. That, that. All right. On to listener questions, Jim. This mm. one's from Kathy, who says, uh, any idea when DVC members will again be able to purchase annual passes? Um, so this is completely unscientific, Kathy. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking that after spring break is over, so maybe the end of April or the beginning of May, and I think DVC APs will come back before non-DVC APs. I could be wrong. And again, we know that the reason for that is that DVC makes a lot less financial sense when you're buying individual tickets instead of APs. And Disney's cognizant Mm. of that as well, right? Mm. All right. Good luck with that, uh, Kathy. 
Here's one from Joshua who says, I love the Disney dish. I've been a Bandcamp member for over five years. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We're a family of four with two boys, 13 and nine. We're always at Disneyland, but rarely make it to Orlando. But in November, we're finally taking the trip and want to know which Marriott to spend some of our Disney World trip at. The Swan, the Dolphin, or the Swan Reserve? Any recommendations? All right. So I thought about this, uh, Jim, and I would pick the Swan or Dolphin for a couple of reasons. One, they're closer to the park and they have more amenities. I also like the food over at the Dolphin slightly better than at the Swan, but they're so close. It's not really an inconvenience to walk over to the other one, and especially at night. It's actually kind of pretty. Yeah, that works. Mm -hmm. I think the Swan Reserve is decent. It's stylish, but it's small. And that's the big downfall for it. So it's got one kitchen. That one kitchen serves the restaurant Amare, which I really like. Um, But it also serves the pool, the bar, and room service. So during common meal times, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, it can get overwhelmed pretty easily. Also, it's just got one pool. I think, Joshua, it'd be better for like a long weekend without the kids. So if you ever want to do like a date night with your wife. And in that case, I would actually recommend Amara. I do like the food there. I was there a couple of weeks with Laurel. So if you do a date night one night, that's an option. And uh, Joshua, let me know where you end up, please. And we're happy to help with other questions. Cool, cool. Uh, Here's a comment from Paul in Kennesaw, Georgia, about using Genie Plus when you mix annual pass holders with day ticket holders. And here's his comment. I recently traveled to Disney with family. We had a mixed group of tickets. My wife's and my tickets are APs, and three other members of the group had standard 4A tickets. When we pre-purchased the tickets for our three non-AP members, we went and prepaid for Genie Plus. On the first night on property, I went to purchase Genie Plus for my wife and myself at midnight and got an error. Okay, that's not surprising, Paul. Hmm. At this point in the uh, in the in the email, I'm like, okay, well, you know, you and seven million other people. All right, but. Hmm. Paul continues, uh, I think nothing of it and decide to try again in the morning. I wait until 6.50 a.m. and I discover then that I can only purchase Genie Plus for myself and my wife if I go and try to book Lightning Lanes for the other three members of my party and try to include myself and my wife on the booking because then it fails and you get an option to do it. <laughs> so, so that's how you have to purchase Genie Plus when you've got a mixed group. Uh, so Paul goes on and says, it's bad enough to try and book the top tier Lightning Lane at 7 a.m. Before, before inventory runs out. But now I had to try and make the booking, add myself and my wife, let it error out with the app telling me that two members don't have Genie Plus, then purchase Genie Plus, then let the purchase complete for the original 9 a.m. Lightning Lane selection, which by the way is now 3 p.m., but the app gives you no warning that the time has changed while the app is completing the purchase and taking your money. And then Paul included a screenshot where he chatted with guest services, confirming what he thought was the issue. So uh, Paul said he hasn't heard this talked about anywhere else and he wanted to share his experience in hopes it helps others in a similar situation. Yeah, that is crazy, Paul. Uh, I've had this conversation internally with Disney reps and my the point that I keep coming back to over and over again is that the people who write the code mm-hmm. should have to use their own code on their trips. And if they did, things would get a lot better. Back in Walt's day, when the Imaginers went to the park, he insisted that you can't pull around back. You can't come in the nope. back door. You you have to park in the parking lot. You have to come through with the guests. You have to eat the guest food. Yep. You know, you have to walk in the guest shoes. And during the, the Walt years, that's when we got all of those wonderful classic attractions. Because it's yeah. like, okay, this is how you actually experience the park. Whereas the guys who are writing this code, they're going to Universal. You know, that, that's the <laughs> yeah. only explanation. If they had to jump through this many hoops yep. to get their, their reservations, they would never themselves 
allow this code to be in place. Because how many months now has it been since the launch of, of Lightning Lane and Disney Plus? Yeah, it's been it's been what six months easy. Yeah, yeah October, November, uh, December, January, February, March, six months. Yeah, and I would say you know we're saying here programmers, but it's also management, right? Management needs to experience the parks the way that guests experience the parks. And I'm I know right now because I, I you know Jim we. There are lots of Imagineers that we talk to that we don't mention on the show, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. There are similarly lots of frontline cast members mm-hmm. who we are friends with who will yep. tell you that their managers literally do not step foot in the park once a year. Yeah. And yeah. that's getting to be a problem. It's a cliche, but it's a true cliche that when you have a good time, you tell three friends. When you have yeah. a bad time, you tell 10 friends. And if they said... For six months now, people have been going home and be, hey, how was your Walt Disney World trip? It's, oh, let me tell you about (laughs) Genie. Let me tell you about Lightning Lane. You know, and it's like, Disney needs to understand this narrative is out there and they need to to address this code issue ASAP. I did uh, did an interview a couple weeks ago at the Washington Post. And one of the Mm -hmm. things that I mentioned in that interview was that in the, you know, the 20... 25 years I've been working with the unofficial guide. I can't mm. think of another thing other than Genie Plus and Lightning Lane that has caused mm. so much negative reaction in the community around park operations. It's It's got to be half or more of the, the comments that we get in our surveys about how bad the experience is for a variety of reasons. It's not necessarily even the cost. It's the rigmarole that people have to go through to mm. book it. And again, I, I think that if management had to go through this mm. the same way that people did, we would have a vastly different process. Absolutely. But the saddest part of the story is that if you talk with anybody in senior management at Disney, they literally say, but look at the stock price. Yeah, no, look at the stock price. Look at how much money we're making. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of these things. It's like if there if they were really an issue and people were really upset about us, wouldn't the stock have dipped? And it hasn't. So. <laughs> this is the, this is the, uh, the thing about uh, concentrating on shareholder value instead of stakeholder value, right? Yeah, All right, fair enough. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim and I propose a list of Disney theme park modern classics, rides and shows built since the year 2000 that will stand the test of time. We'll be right back. My mom turned 90 earlier this year. She's still very, very sharp, though. Just the other day, I went by the house, and Mom began telling me stories about her dad, who was elected to the Massachusetts House of Representatives back in the 1920s. As Mom began talking about how things were really got done at Beantown back in the day, and all of the political wheeling and dealing that went on behind closed doors, I realized I'd never heard her tell this story before. Which made me think, what other tales about her growing up in Boston is my mom yet to share with me? Which is when I realized I really needed to get my mother signed up for StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones connect through sharing stories and memories and preserves them for years yet to come. And how exactly do they do that, you ask? Well, every week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question of your choice from a vast pool of options. Each unique prompt asks a question that maybe you've never thought to ask them before. Like, uh, what was one of your fondest childhood memories? Or what was the best advice you've ever received? After one year, StoryWorth compiles all of these questions and stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that the whole family can then share for generations. I'm sure that my own daughter, Alice, who works as an artist, will love hearing about how all the colorful characters her grandmother encountered when my mom was studying at the Massachusetts College of Arts back in the 1940s. And that'll be thanks to all of the stories that will have been collected by StoryWorth in this keepsake book. 
So get to know your loved one better and preserve those special moments forever with StoryWorth. Right now, for a limited time, you can save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash Disney Dish. Again, that's S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash Disney Dish to save $10 on your first purchase. Storyworth.com slash Disney Dish. We thank them for sponsoring today's episode. Okay, we all know how expensive it is to get a new pair of glasses these days, which is why this offer from Kits.com, they're this up-and-coming glasses retailer, just sounds, well, crazy. Because your first pair is free. Seriously. Pick from the hundreds of chic styles that Kits.com offers, and then just pay $9.95 to cover the cost of shipping. And your new glasses will be on your doorstep within days. Which just seems mind-blowing to me. I mean, how is it that Kits.com can offer quality glasses like these at affordable prices? Well, it helps that all lenses are manufactured at Kits Optical Lab up in Vancouver, rather than someplace offshore, so that the quality is better and you can then get your glasses that much faster. Uh, Mind you, you don't need to take my word for it when it comes to Kits.com. Trustpilot, the consumer review website, has given this glasses retailer a 4.5 star rating, which, given that Trustpilot's topmost rating is 5 stars, is pretty impressive. Of course, some terms and conditions apply. Some styles of glasses are excluded from Kits.com's first pair free offer. This offer is also only applicable up to minus 4 prescriptions, which covers most people. But for those folks who have more complex prescriptions, well, that's going to require a more expensive lens. But Kits.com currently is a great deal for those eyeglass wearers as well, which is to take $69 off of the cost of those frames. I mean, I know, it all sounds too good to be true. But if you head on over to the Kits.com website, you'll see that they are, in fact, offering you your first pair of glasses for free. So why not try Kits.com's virtual try-on? And if you like what you see, be sure and use the code FREEKITS at checkout. Again, get your first pair of Kits.com glasses on them. No strings attached. Just pay $9.95 for shipping. Go to Kits.com, that's K-I-T-S dot com, and use code FREEKITS, F-R-E-E-K-I-T-S, at checkout. Kits.com, quality glasses at affordable prices. We thank them for sponsoring today's episode. Today's show is brought to you by BetterHelp. You know what's ironic? A lot of us out there will drop everything to go help someone we care about. I mean, we'll go way out of our way to treat other people well. But how often do we give ourselves that same sort of treatment? Seriously. We all want to be there for friends and family. But but let's be honest here. You can't help those folks if you yourself aren't feeling mentally healthy. That's why BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does. And if you feel the need for some self-care, well, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. More to the point, BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So why not give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy? As I mentioned a moment ago, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, which is why Disney Dish listeners will get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Disney Dish. Again, that's BetterHelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Disney Dish. 
All right, Jim, I thought this would be fun because uh, Laurel and I were, were discussing this one uh, one night. We were walking mm. through, you know, one of the parks last week, and we thought we were trying to figure out what ride to go on. And then um, I think we had differing opinions about which ride we wanted to go on, so we started debating the merits. And then we we were like, oh, you know what? This would be a great topic for the show. So so mm. let's uh, let's get started here. Modern classics of the Disney theme parks. Well, what Len and I are trying to do here today is we're focusing on that period from 2001 to 2050, which will be the next 50 years of Disney theme park development. And we're more than 20 years into that span at this point, two-fifths of the way. Len, why don't you take us through your five of what you consider the modern classics of the Disney theme parks? All right, so we've got a couple here, and I know um, the thing that surprises me is looking at your list and looking at my list, there's very little overlap. But I, I, I do love um, the fact that you mentioned Pirates of the Caribbean mm. as the first ride in your quintessential part of theme park going experience mm. because mm. that is, I think, any fan or any scholar of theme parks will mm. say that Pirates influenced every subsequent large dark ride that came after it, right? In terms of scope, in terms of detail, in terms of theming, right? Pirates was, Pirate is the er attraction, right? So uh, that was the criteria I used for mine too. Like what what attractions were either going to be, you know, literally duplicated in other theme parks mm-hmm. or copied, uh, the idea copied elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. So the first one that I came up with, Soarin' Over California at Disney's California Adventure. I think mm-hmm. uh, that when it opened in 2001, immediately became the most popular attraction in the park. It later came uh, to Walt Disney World. It's gone through iterations since then. Uh, it's a novel ride system. The ride mechanics and the ride experience are exquisite. It combined basically flying in an IMAX theater mm-hmm. with excellent visuals and uh, smellitizers, right? So as you flew over orange groves, you smelled citrus. And as you flew over the ocean, you smelled water. I think that is a fantastic attraction. The other thing that I really like about it is it is uh, appropriate for virtually every age of visitor uh, mm-hmm. in the theme park. So it's not like a roller coaster in which you've got height requirements that keep out small children or the elderly because of the intensity of the ride. Soren is gentle and everyone loves it. Since it opened, it has perennially been one of the highest rated attractions in any Disney theme park. It's a classic uh, and whoever worked on it should be proud. My first modern classic was also uh, sort of over California, though I also stress that one of the more important components is the music. The amazing, (laughs) yeah, that Jerry Goldsmith wrote for this is just incredible theme, which, by the way, they they sampled when they did the update in 2016, the the Soaring Around the World. Wonderful, wonderful show. In fact, I was happy to see that just recently DCA, at least for a a short period of time, actually brought back the original show. My one quibble about the original version of the show is, you know how in California you enter that show building and you go down the ramp and then they decide if you're going to theater on one side or theater on the other? It it has a, a distinct airport terminal feel to it. There we go. But if you look directly up, there is this big, broad ceiling that stands there empty. And it's just like, well, what were they going to do with that? And it's like the original plan the Imagineers had was they were going to stage the ultimate air show. It was all going to be done projected, but it would literally start off with the Wright Brothers, you know, flyer from Kitty Hawk, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of over your head. And then it would end with Howard Hughes's Spruce Goose sort of blotting out the sun with a couple of stealth bombers. 
showing up in between. But DCA was, was produced on, on a tight budget. And yeah. I, in fact, I remember interviewing Marty Scalar just before the place opened and asked him if there was one thing you'd change about DCA. And he's like, yeah, we'd do a third theater for Sora. Yeah. <laughs> Which they needed, yeah. I love, that you, uh, I love that you mentioned the uh, the soundtrack uh, because mm. one of the Disney theme park audio stations that I listen to is subsonicradio.com. And they mm-hmm. actually have a, a channel dedicated to Soren Q music. Oh. <laughs> We're going to go there today. All right, cool. So, all right, the next on your list, what do you got? Uh, Rise of the Resistance at Disney's Hollywood Studios. So mm. the uh, uh, I think we've talked about this on the show. Uh, mm. It is excellent in terms of scope. It has great music. It has fantastic effects. A couple of the those scenes, such as going through the room with the at-ats or when Kylo Ren projects his uh, lightsaber through the ceiling. You know, a couple of those things, Jim, you and I had read about them. We knew how the patents described what was supposed to happen. But seeing it in person the first time still made me wonder how they actually pulled it off. I think this is one of the classic Disney attractions, everything from the plot to the effects to the music at the end makes it uh, an excellent ride. It's also the highest rated attraction in any Disney or Universal theme park in the United States. I really feel like I have to go back and experience Rise of the Resistance post-pandemic. Right. Because I'm being menaced by a stormtrooper who's wearing a mask, who's really having trouble enunciating the threat. (laughs) Yeah, not, not the same thing. It's a different effect now, yeah. Also coupled with the fact that after the escape, they hustle us into the, the room where we're going to get in our droid-powered vehicle and begin the bulk of the ride. And we had an issue with one of the seatbelts. And it took two minutes to, to resolve. Yeah. And, that, and, then and that dis- breaks the continuity. It does. It yeah. does. And it's just that I feel like I didn't see it at its best advantage. And I'd love to go back to see the performers maskless and with yeah. the plastic shields down and, and maybe with a with a team that can actually hustle us into the thing and get us dispatched quick. But but you're yeah. not wrong. It, it has amazing craft. It's a hugely ambitious ride. And there's still a lot of Imagineers who were like, mm, we should have had it tied to the new hope. But, you know, it's, it's another issue. You mentioned the uh, the technical issues with it, and that is that sort of goes hand in hand with some of these rides because you know the things that we're talking about are not only innovative in terms of story and design, but the ride mm. systems themselves are also very very sophisticated. Soren was a novel ride system, Rise mm-hmm. of the Resistance a novel ride system um, mm-hmm. as well. So that that plays into some of this. Rise of the Resistance is not particularly reliable. I think we all know that they've got some issues, but uh, but even that, you know, I think I still think it's one of the great attractions. I actually picked this one, Jim, over Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, which I love. We haven't talked enough about what uh, the contributions that uh, Charita Carter made to this as an Imagineer. I am looking forward to whatever she's working on next. Um, I think Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is the one ride that I go on every single time Mm. I'm in Disney's Hollywood Studios. Even, you know, even with the weight, I, I think it's a fantastic ride. Well, there's at least two rooms in that attraction. The the South Seas Island with the volcano. That I, I, then, that's, that's, that's the perfect scene, yeah. It's, it's the factory scene that becomes <sighs> the placid park at the end. I still haven't seen everything in the factory scene. No, no. It's, it's, it, in fact, that's the thing. It's so eminently rewritable. 
I think it's you and Seska Bersky, you know, who, who helps out with the unofficial guide, but pointed out the three separate storylines that are actually yes. in, yeah, what is it? Uh, Mickey and Minnie's the main story, and then yep. poor Pluto, who's who's chasing after them because he's accidentally been left behind. And and then the crab, is that right? There's or? a crab that's hidden in every scene, yeah. And for some of them, you, you have to have perfect timing. You either have mm. to be in the very first car or the mm. very last car. So you can't see all of the crab scenes in one ride because of the position uh, that you're in. So like at the, uh, even the very beginning scene, you know, like where Mickey and Minnie are coming down the mountain, like the, yep. the, the initial scene right after the load uh, station, mm-hmm. the crab is there, but you have to be in the absolute last seat and you have to be looking for it instead of looking ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple of other interesting things on this. Um, I'm told, Jim, it has more hidden Mickeys than any other attraction in any Disney theme park. That, of course, makes sense. But I love this thing right from the pre-show where you literally step into the screen because Goofy's blown a hole in it. (laughs) By the way, I just learned in like the past week or so, when when you get to the city scene and -hmm. you duck into the dance studio and it's Daisy Duck leading the class, that was originally Clarabelle Cow. Really? it, it came to the pitch session, you know, the final lockdown with Bob Iger. And Bob Iger was like, oh, I don't like Clarabelle. You need to make that to, a, to you know, another character. So it's like, evidently, Bob Iger was lact- really lactose, lactose intolerant. intolerant. <laughs> Bovine phobia. All right, Bob. Oh, there we go. <laughs> good, to, good to know. Also, I think we would be remiss if we did not talk about the theme song. Oh, yes. Nothing can stop us now. But but again, that's the other thing that's beautiful about this attraction. It is, it's a celebration of the Paul Ruddish Mickey shorts, which started in 2013. And a huge component of the success of that show has been the scores that Chris Willis has written for these things. And he's the guy who wrote the Nothing Can Stop You Now. That is a wonderful part of this attraction. Yeah, love it. I think it's uh, I think it's a classic as well. This is one of those things where I'm glad you picked it, so I didn't mm-hmm. have to, so we could talk about different things. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. All right. My next one, um, Expedition Everest at Disney, Disney's Animal Kingdom. Uh, I think this is the best front seat roller coaster experience in Walt Disney World. It also has a super efficient single rider line. But the thing I really like about this is is the way that uh, Joe Rody and his team integrated a thrill ride into the overall theme of the animal kingdom. So the animal kingdom is supposed to focus on the natural world and the animals that inhabited it, right? So Joe Rody's famous comment that Zootopia in his mind doesn't belong in animal kingdom because it's dedicated to the real world. Mm-hmm. When he built this, he kept that in mind. If you go through the queue, he sets up that premise really, really well by walking you through different camping expeditions and their preparations for summiting Everest, and also the experiences with the Yeti that they have along the way. And so it fits in with the overall story of the park. And I will contrast this with Guardians of the Galaxy, which is coming to Epcot. Not only is it in Future World and based on a cartoon character, which Future World has never had before, but Disney's also sort of like breaking the fourth wall, if you will, by saying that the Guardians of the Galaxy attraction is actually a world showcase pavilion in future world which again thematically makes no sense and i i present that only as the contrast to what joe Rody was able to do by integrating in a thrill ride into the animal kingdom right that's the way it should be done and look you're not wrong it's it's a masterful attraction the storytelling as you go through the queue just that display of the found photographs of the destroyed camp and and those right. weird blurry photos of the eddy i mean really do a wonderful job of establishing the story but 
I did not include this in my list, in spite of the fact it's a wonderful coaster, especially front seat, and I love the whole we're going backwards, and yep. you you can't argue with the amazing mechanics where you, you switch the track instantaneously, Yeah, but... I can't put this on the list because if you go back to the original hype for this attraction where they kept talking about, oh, the Yeti figure, biggest AA we've ever done. And, you know, arm moves with the power of a 747 taking off. And it's like this thing opened in January of 2006. And by six months in, they were on B mode with the, yeah, the, the it's AA the hatbox figure. ghost of Animal Kingdom. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I mean, it, it's still a wonderful ride, but when you build to that moment you build that effect and you've got now a thing that's just sort of hanging there with yeah. lighting i just go yeah yeah i can't i'm sorry i get what you're saying it's all perfectly valid but it's like the fact that it's been sitting there for dear lord is it 16 years now <laughs> it's really that long yeah it is isn't it it's unforgivable you know i'm sorry that's uh it's a good point fair yeah. fair it's mm-hmm. a good point all right so my next thing here we picked different things, but we did mm. for the same reason. Uh, okay. I'm going to go with uh, Happily Ever After at the Magic Kingdom for its use of second-generation projection technology. So mm. I had actually considered Mystic Manor at Hong Kong mm. Disneyland because mm. it makes extensive use of this. Um, mm. I think Happily is a little bit more groundbreaking than that. So this was the uh, fireworks show at the Magic Kingdom that replaced Wishes. Mm-hmm. The, the f- big advance that it made was the incredible not only the incredible amount of visuals that it displayed mm-hmm. in the castle, but the incredible amount of detail that went into these things. I mean, each part of the castle at various points shows different scenes from classic Disney uh, movies. There's so much going on in such vibrant colors that it is impossible to see everything in one sitting, which makes you want to come back. And actually, I think the visuals and the fireworks combine to make the soundtrack less relevant. The soundtrack is just okay, but in terms of advancing the state of the art in projection technology and theme parks, Happily Ever After was a milestone. That's kind of my complaint about Enchantment is that the show made some pretty impressive steps forward. Yeah. But with Happily Ever After, you always knew where you were supposed to look, and you're right. There was a lot of detail on that show, which made you go back to watch it yet again to see what you'd missed. But with Enchantment, it was the first time I felt like I didn't know where to look. Yeah, agreed. Am I looking at the stuff behind me here on Main Street? Am I supposed to be looking at the castle? And then the fact that so many of the images that powered the show are kind of in the lower quadrant of the castle. It means and you can't see them even farther back because of the uh, other there people. There we go. Yeah. There yeah. we go. And it, and it always makes me crazy when these people who do the shows at the parks, who've done them for decades, make a mistake like that to the effect of, this looks wonderful on my computer here, you know, <laughs> yeah. in the entertainment office. It's like, yeah, get in the park and actually look at that, especially when you're far down Main Street where this is entertainment, not an eye test. So am I looking at Coco? Am I looking at Moana? What am I looking at here? You, you mentioned that. Um, have you ever seen the internal simulation study that Disney did for um, Enchantment? No, I have not. They actually used, um, they actually simulated uh, crowds. Mm-hmm. But they they missed two things in the simulation. I have the video. I can send it to you. Mm-hmm. The um, first thing that they did was they assumed the vantage point of like a six foot tall person. Okay. So if you're a kid or if you're shorter than six feet, 
Um, mm -hmm. That does, the second thing that they didn't really do was take into account um, people holding up phones or iPads to video, which adds another two feet onto the the height barrier. You know, if you're farther back, and two feet means a lot when you're farther back. It means that you basically can't see the second, the bottom half of the of the castle. So I think that's one of the things where the simulation technology didn't reflect the real, real world. And to your point, um, mm -hmm. that's one of the things that you only know once you open up an attraction and see how people actually experience it. There we go. There we go. And you picked Mystic Manor here. Mm -hmm. I did. I did. You remember the Mark Davis era when Mark was talking about all of the detail that they put into Pirates of the Caribbean and it's like, Walt, people aren't going to be able to see all this at one ride through. And he's like, well, Mark, mm -hmm. it's like a cocktail party. You hear something over there, you see something over there, and you're going to have to come back and rewrite it. Whereas Mystic Manor, I think, is the first time in a Disney theme park attraction where you tell an entire story. So many smart choices. I mean, think about it. You really only have two characters in this thing. Yep. You have uh, Lord Henry Mystic, and you and have his, his, yeah, Albert, his pet monkey. And you have that lovely bookend of the show where you start in the, his collections room where he receives new objects and, you know, and they've just received a music box that supposedly has some magical properties and Albert, no, don't open that. <laughs> and then that's the rest of the attraction that Albert yeah. opens it and Danny Elfman did the score for Mystic Manor, and it's amazing. It's a great score. Yeah, in fact, I, I listened to it this morning as yeah. I was doing the show notes. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is, you move from room to room, and it has yeah. these amazingly grisly, funny gags, though. Right, yeah, and it's using the projection technology. There's that lovely one of where you're in the room that has the, the, the painting of Mount Vesuvius, and you have the people outside with the wine, <laughs> and then the mountain explodes, and the, instantly the, the you know all you see are these hands sticking up out of the lava, still holding their wine glasses. Yeah, and they're clinking them together. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, it has a wonderfully twisted sensibility, but that capper, when you're in that final room, the Chinese salon, yeah. and the house is literally tearing itself apart around you, and you're in your trackless vehicle, and you're spinning around the room, and you see at the very last minute, Albert slams the lid shut on the music box, and it's which is kind of a, a throwback to that Sorcerer's Apprentice feel, where they yeah. finally get the magic under control and you're back in the collections room and everything is where it's supposed to be and sir albert opens the door looks in and it's like oh albert yeah, don't touch that music box bad things could happen yeah it's a nice bookend when this attraction opened in 2013 there was an agreement with hong kong that you get this as an exclusive for five years but after that we'd really like to take this around the, the world this is a killer attraction and it never happened they'd lost momentum for some reason and, and so ah oh, that's a shame the um the thing that I like about some of the um the animations at the beginning, and you mentioned the the Pompeii one, the Mount Vesuvius one, is yep. that that to me is a throwback to the classic sixties animation gags of like Jay Ward or Hanna Barbera, right? It's yep. not super sophisticated, mm -hmm. but it it relies on the juxtaposition of the scene, right? The the strange thing happening to an otherwise common scene. And mm -hmm. I, you know, it's again very simple, but still like a great little visual gag. Oh, funny as hell as well. Yeah. And that's the yeah. thing. There's so many great gags that you can instantly read and understand what's going yeah. on. Like and, you, and, yeah, you, you get the reference too, right? You're yeah. like, okay, I, I get the call out here. That's nice. Yeah. That's yeah. Cool too. yeah. So. All right. Um, so I have one more and it also uses projection technology to great effect. And it goes back to one of the attractions we talked about at the beginning of the show. Pirates mm -hmm. of the Caribbean, Battle for the Sunken Treasure, uh, Shanghai Disneyland. I, mm -hmm. um, this is, I think, 
Disneyland Pirates of the Caribbean is the best domestic Pirates of the Caribbean. It's better than World, right? The story makes more sense. It's uh, and it's also much longer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Pirates of the Caribbean: Battle of the Sunken Treasure at Shanghai Disneyland is the best Pirates of the Caribbean in the world. If you look at the effects, if you look at the animatronics and how uh, that's interwoven with projection technology on top of a familiar ride story that we all know, this is really the ultimate version of Pirates of the Caribbean. It is fantastic. I've kind of soured on Pirates. I, I think the most recent redo of Pirates where we changed the auctioneer scene and we put oh, in yeah. red. I mean, in the world, it doesn't make any sense anymore. The story makes no sense. Well, that's the thing. I just, I feel yeah. like it started out okay with we fold in Johnny Depp and Captain Jack Sparrow, but it, it just, it feels like, especially the stateside versions, they just massaged it too much. It just made me lose my enthusiasm for Pirates around the globe because of that. That said, I still would love to get to Shanghai and experience this in person because what I've right. seen looks amazing. But again, it, it's kind of like my feeling toward Expedition Everest, which, just to be honest, kind of irrational. You know, just like the, <laughs> the you know, there's a wonderful attraction there. It's just yeah. you know, in the middle of the the attraction, there's an AA figure that doesn't work. You know, but it, it it soured me to that attraction. And and same thing with Pirates. It's still a wonderful ride, but it's like, oh God, how many times do we have to fix this ride? Yeah. I mean, I think at, at this point, the so first of all, let me say, you know, I, I understand that rides have to adapt to changing times. So the they scenes do. that were acceptable in the 50s are not acceptable mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. But it's the way that they were changed that broke the story. And it, you mentioned the addition of Johnny Depp. So our friend uh, Werner over at Yesterland pointed out that when they mm-hmm. added in Johnny Depp, Mm-hmm. It became not a story through space, right? Mm-hmm. Go, going through the town. It was a story through space and time because you had Johnny Depp in multiple scenes, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that was one complication. Then two, the auction scene with the chickens makes mm-hmm. no sense in the context of the story. And again, we've talked about this on the show as well, right? Mm-hmm. Why in the middle of bombarding a town and torturing its citizens and blowing up every other building, why are we stopping to, to set the correct market price for poultry? Makes no sense, right? As funny as the scene is in a gag, in the story, it just doesn't make any sense. This, for some odd reason, makes me think of the most recent redo of Jungle Cruise, where it's like, Len, were you lying awake at night wondering who those five people were on, you know, in the Lost Safari previously? I mean... No, I was not, actually. No. Okay. So, you know, the whole notion of, oh, well, you know, one's a botanist and one's a painter and, you know, it's like, uh, don't answer questions I'm not asking. Just entertain me. That's all I ask. Yeah. If it's going to be, if it's going to be a spinoff or something later on, if they're, they're, if they're part of like, you know, the Society of uh, uh, Explorers and Adventurers, right? If that's the mm-hmm. tie-in, I get that, you know, if you're going to use it at some point in the future, but, you know, mm-hmm. just if it's fluff just for fluffing, yeah. I get that. I get All right. that. Oh. I've, got, uh, I've got two more, and I think you have two more as well. So we said five, sure. but I'm going to do a couple mm-hmm. more. Okay. Agent P's World Showcase Adventure at Epcot mm-hmm. um, for its interactivity. So this was the first big walk around to Epcot, and mm-hmm. we're going to build interactive elements into the World Showcase pavilions in -hmm. a way that hadn't been done before. And I think it's important for two reasons. One, it was Disney's first attempt to get to marry kids and uh, cell phone technology Mm -hmm. in Epcot. But also, if you think about the interactivity that it brought, Disney later tried other experiments, things like Sorcerers of the Magic Kingdom, the Pirates Adventure, uh, and also the stuff that's coming up with Magic Band Plus, right? Yeah. Agent Mm -hmm. P was was version 1.0 of what we're going to see with Magic Band Plus. 
I have to say, I'm totally behind this idea, if only because it got Heinz Doofenshmirtz in Epcot. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hearing uh, hearing Doofenshmirtz in France was a, was a highlight of the uh, World Circuit's experience. Totally. Totally. Uh, classic. And, and you picked um, actually another attraction at Hollywood Studios, right? I did. I picked Slinky Dog Dash. Ooh, and and yeah. well, now, you know, now I know that there are a lot of people who are looking at modern classics, and if we're talking the family coaster category. Category, would have gone with Seven Dwarfs Mine Train over at the Magic mm. Kingdom. And uh, my argument there is when you come into Toy Story Land, when you come in, especially from the the uh, the, the Chinese theater side, mm-hmm. the Slinky Dog Dash is one the very first things you see. It's staged beautifully. It, it, it has a lot of energy, a lot of kinetics to this side of the park. Also, it's a very generous ride in that it has two launch sequences. Yeah. Coupled with the fact that if you do Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you enter that queue space that was designed when Disney was very into the scene ones. I remember scene ones. Yeah. <laughs> I remember what the future was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of high touch, you know, the, 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 the cleaning of the gems and the spinning of the, the barrels, which let's remember, you know, following the pandemic, we weren't allowed to touch anything. So right. it's like, yeah. I get it that it has a great scene in the middle, the wonderful mind scene and the, the you know. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about this scene. I think that they deliberately slowed down the attraction uh, in order to lengthen the overall experience. Because other than that, it's a it's basically a, a sixty second ride. And I think I think to your point, the big innovation. Uh, it, so this didn't make my list. I considered it. Um, it didn't make my list because yeah. other than the um, ride vehicles swinging side to side, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, what really is in there? And then it's not great in terms of effect to your point um there's just mm. a lot of like driving around the the landscaping what i love about uh slinky dog dash is you walk over the coaster as you go yep. in and at the time the time that you're in line you're constantly seeing the coaster go around you and it's just yeah. sort of like Ooh, it's kinetic you know, you, it makes you feel like you know. something's happening even if, even if the line's 135 minutes long <laughs> yeah and then I love the button at the end of the ride where you, you finish your ride and you come to go into the load station. And who's there but Wheezy? He's singing. You got a friend for me from Toy Story. And again, yeah. music for me is a lot of the success of an individual ride. That's, a, that's Robert Goulet singing that, right? There we go. Mr. Butter Toast Hair. <laughs> I went on this uh, last week with Laurel. It's Laurel's favorite ride in the studios. Uh, uh, so like where I, I would go on Runaway mm-hmm. Railway every time I'm in the park, we have to do mm-hmm. Slinky Dog every mm-hmm. time Laurel's in the park. It's her favorite ride. The thing that amazes me about this is, I mean, it's basically mm-hmm. an off-the-shelf coaster, right? But the way that the track is configured brings mm-hmm. a smile to everyone's face. Like I've I've ridden this with strangers, you know, mm-hmm. dozens of times. Mm-hmm. Kids, adults, everyone mm-hmm. in between. Every single person gets off that ride smiling. And for an mm-hmm. off-the-shelf coaster that is outdoors with no major effects, that's mm-hmm. that's an accomplishment. So it's a real tribute to the team who put this together. Cool. And then speaking of music, my uh, number five would be Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. At yeah, this California is the uh, this is the most contentious of the, of your choices. Really, yeah. I, I would th- I would have thought, given how well they use songs like "We Bring the Funk" and "Hit Me with Your Best Shot" and that sort of thing, this would yeah. be a favorite of yours. You you don't particularly care for it, or what? It's the fact that it's built on top of Tower of Terror and not an original attraction that I was going with. Well, now remember, 
The original Tower of Terror opens in July of 94 and has that wonderful fifth dimension scene. And sure. when this one opened at DCA in 2004, for both operational efficiency and to lower the cost of building the thing, mm-hmm. they cut the fifth dimension scene. So right. it was already a lesser tower to begin with. But the fact that Joe Rody and his team came in, I mean, remember, they shut this thing down in January, like January 3rd of 2017. Yeah. And on May 27th of that same year, this reopened as an entirely new attraction. Yeah, that's an amazing turnaround for you know, uh, for a company's biggest Disney, yeah. And also, it's worth noting that when they redid the attraction, the, for the first time ever, they stepped away from the Disney classic theme park language where, remember, it was when Walt talked about the parks he talked about them in film terms you know you had like the establishing shot of the the castle in the distance and each individual lens would draw you off whereas mission breakout was designed with a gamer's language as in 360 degrees of story the q space where it used to be the old lobby where you now have you know the the collector's collection you know there's hours of stuff to discover in there coupled with the fact that the rocket animatronic and the old library room is the most sophisticated, impressive uh, animatronic that Disney has produced in years. It, it's it's the first all-electric. Just absolutely amazing animation. Also, for the very first time when the Imagineers realized that, you know, that figure's going to break down. So we need to be ready. And they prepared an alternate version of the pre-show film where Rocket was just on the monitor. By the way, I, I am kind of intrigued that neither of us mentioned Millennium Falcon. <laughs> It's it, we didn't. Uh, yeah. There's a lot, lot of things we, we we didn't pick. My big thing with Falcon, and I've said this on the mm. show before, is that the gunner mm. position isn't what we know no. from Episode Four, and that no. that disqualified for me immediately. No. Yeah. Mission Breakout, impressive as hell. And and again, to yeah. give Imagineering kudos, less than four months, they introduced a seasonal variation, the Monsters After Dark. And, yep. and by the way, we may be breaking a little news on today's show, that they're shooting Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 right now. Yep. And while they're doing that, they're also shooting a Guardians holiday special. <laughs> because the Star Wars Christmas special went over so well. <laughs> That's the kind of the whole point that James Gunn. There has to be a shout out to that in there. Please, yeah, God. Yeah. Okay. But supposedly James Gunn personally shot the ride footage that's in Mission Breakout, and he shot all of the ride footage that will be in Cosmic Rewind. But supposedly, while they were shooting the holiday special, they also got enough elements so that there could be a Christmas variation of Mission Breakout. Oh, holiday uh, holiday layover. Is it Disneyland yeah. gets all the cool layovers? I know, I know. That's fantastic, though. That'd be that's hysterical. I, you know, I, I will say this: I, mm-hmm. I, I like Tower of Terror in, in Walt Disney World. I think it's the mm-hmm. it's the best version of it. When they announced this for Disneyland, I thought it was going to be a cheap overlay. Mm-hmm. But when I actually experienced it, I came out of it saying, "Okay, that you know that wasn't bad at all." I you know I can get behind this. So uh, it exceeded my expectations, and they got it done in five months. So you can't yeah, nothing. Nothing crazy. Wrong with that. That, that's yeah. an amazing story. I, obviously, there's a lot of other ads we could have talked about. In fact, I would have loved to put on the table here the the Sinbad Storybook Voyage. Oh, at uh, Tokyo? 
You you want to talk about an amazing redo where you know they bring in again music. They brought in a compass of your heart by Alan Menken and brought in the little cute tiger Chandu sidekick and took an attraction that should have been that that parks pirates or small world and five years later managed to actually change it into what it was supposed to be. Again, we we need to save that story for another time. But also, honestly, folks, we'd love to hear from you about. What do you think of what Len and I talked about today? But are these your modern Disney theme park classics? And if not, what were the rides, shows, and attractions you would have thought you'd see on this list? Yeah, so. that's right. Yeah, definitely uh, let us know on Twitter or send us uh, an email through the uh, Bandcamp form mm-hmm. on, uh, on what you guys think will, should be in uh, everyone's top five. There you go. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, what's pricing going to be like at Universal's Epic Universe theme park? We'll have some ideas from a new Universal survey that just came out. You can catch more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at touringplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who'll be handing out samples of Grandma Adams' whiskey-infused mead while singing the Adams Family Collection of Wassailing Songs at the 37th Annual Georgia Renaissance Festival on Saturday, April 9th on Verlin Smith Road, just off exit 61 in beautiful downtown Fairburn, Georgia. Huzzah! While Aaron's doing that, please go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.